1: 2017 had been a great year for Jeremy Corbyn. So far, 2018, with his mishandling of the Screpal poisonings and the charges of anti-Semitism, have been a terrible one. Corbyn and his allies were desperate to change the agenda. Except not to what was the biggest item of all. James Meadway was principal aide to
2: John McDonnell, shadow chancellor. That wasn't just a Jeremy Corbyn issue. I think that's a, a great sway that the Labour Party in all parts of it had a view that if we could just sort of park this issue somewhere and get back to talking about what we want to talk about, like, you know, the state of public services, the NHS, this sort of thing, that would all work out much better. The difficulty was, of course, you try and park the issue, and the bloody thing keeps coming back because Brexit is huge and it touches on every single other thing you want to do all the time. And because the vote was so close, you know, it was going to automatically turn into this never ending sort of backwards and forwards. And sideways,
1: I'm David Aronovich from Tortoise. This is Eight Years Hard Labour, Episode 5 The Revolution Defeated. The Brexit agony of Theresa May, who was always under attack from extreme Brexiteers, was unfolding. However, having lost her parliamentary majority in 2017's election, there was one way out of her impasse. She could do a deal with Labour.
2: So today I am taking action to break the logjam. I'm offering to sit down with the leader of the opposition and to try to agree a plan that we would both stick to to ensure that we leave the European Union and that we do so with a deal.
1: Theresa May's Chief of Staff Gavin Barwell was given the job of seeing what could be done.
3: The Labour team would come over and, yeah, it, they were, they were rarely late at nights. So they were normally during the day, but there were definitely meetings where there were lunch breaks and sandwiches provided and all, all of that. The Corbyn position was simple in a way. He just wanted it over I'm not being sort of rude or critical by saying this but I don't think he was completely across all the minutiae of the detail of of where the deal was and and where the kind of where the difficulties with the EU were but the impression you got is that he wanted to try and find a way of reaching an agreement with the government because actually he didn't want to focus the next election on brexit he wanted it to be about his domestic agenda so he kind of wanted this out of the way and you sort of got the impression that maybe he wasn't totally unsympathetic to Brexit as a cause. But he was also nervous about where the broad mass of the Parliamentary Labour Party was and whether he could land that kind of position. Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit Secretary, wasn't sure that Corbyn fully
1: grasped what was at stake. Tom Baldwin is writing a biography of Starmer.
4: Theresa May was saying something really quite important about Brexit. And the leader of the Labour Party was sat next to him. And the leader Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, kept nudging him saying, trying to talk to him about a, a, a bicycle route in Camden, between Camden and Islington. And he was reading something in Hansard about it. And Keir Starmer was saying, we're actually trying to hear what the Prime Minister is saying, it's quite important about Brexit. Yeah, but bicycle routes are important too, said Jeremy Corbyn.
3: The customs issue was the issue that had been most difficult and labor wanted us to shift our position on that and they kind of felt that the original language we'd used was just a sort of reformulation of our position in some kind of language rather than an actual shift so you know we spent ages agonizing given our own internal difficulties on what we could or couldn't say and in the end we found some language from a letter that jeremy corbyn had written to the prime minister a few weeks earlier that we thought actually we can live with that so we just literally cut and paste that language and, and put it into the, the next iteration of the document that we were sharing with them. And then in the meeting, Keir sort of said, this language on customs is unacceptable to us. And I was like, well, it's literally from Jeremy Corbyn's letter. And there was a slightly sort of awkward um, moment in the meeting, which we then sort of moved on from. Labour's divisions on Brexit,
1: on one side Starmer, on the other Corbyn's close advisers, Seamus Milne and Andrew Fisher,
3: were subtle. So there were never any moments where they started arguing with each other. And, and likewise, on our side, people were a bit too professional to do that. But you could, if you if you listen to the language that different people used, you could sense differences in where they were coming from on these issues. Yeah, you know, I think Keir was there at that time to represent that group within the Labour Party that probably felt a second referendum was where Labour was sort of heading, whereas Seamus and to a lesser extent, Andrew appeared more trying to find a way of resolving it within Parliament, reaching, reach, achieving a major, cross-party majority in Parliament that could, that could get a deal through without a referendum. And then... Yeah, so they were, they were quite close to completion. And then we kind of got a warning from Andrew and Seamus that probably this wasn't going to work. And then fair,
5: a few hours after that, we got a letter from Jeremy calling them off. Andrew Fisher explains why. John McDonnell used a phrase, which I'm going to try and repeat because it's a good one, It was like trying to do a deal with a firm going into liquidation. It wouldn't have held. Even if we'd done a deal, even if we got what we wanted or what we could have lived with, that's all it would have been. Even if we'd done that, Theresa May would have been toppled for doing it, a new leader would have come in and ripped it up, and we would have looked stupid for signing up to it. The
3: main argument he used publicly was that, essentially, the government wasn't stable enough for the process to work. But, in addition, privately, They had said that they didn't think the numbers were there on both sides to provide a secure majority in the House to get the process through. So, no deal. But where did that leave
1: everyone? Keir Starmer was aware that the options were closing down. Tom Baldwin was by this stage working for People's Vote, the campaign for a new referendum. I met him in one of the many Camden cafes that uh, he
4: would hold meetings in. I can't remember which one it was. They'll merge into one eventually. At that first meeting, he was very clear that it would not serve his interests, Labour Party's interests, all the people's vote interests, if he came out and said, yay, people's vote, starting now. He was trying to hold the party together. He was trying to explore what possible options there were left for a soft Brexit. And he's always very clear he wouldn't back a second referendum until those options have been exhausted. And I think he was quite frustrated with our
1: shrill polarisation, which was making his life a little bit more difficult. According to Starmer's close aides, this was the time that, logically, when he worked it out in his head, in the end, a second referendum is probably where we're going to end up having to go because nothing else is on the table. But it most certainly was not the position of the leader of the party or indeed of many Red Wall Labour MPs. Labour Party members, though, were a different matter. The tensions between different parts of the party on Brexit finally surfaced that September at the party conference. Tortoise's Cat Neelan was there and tells the story of how it all went down.
0: This is a deeply contested part of Labour's recent history. Why did Keir Starmer publicly commit not just to a second referendum, but also to keeping Remain on the table? Not least because that's not what the Leader's Office had sanctioned. On the Corbyn side of the argument, it still provokes claims that Starmer was, as one source puts it, giving a fuck you to the leader, going for an option that had not been agreed by the leader's office and showing a bit of ankle for a future leadership bid. But according to those close to Starmer, in a four-hour meeting the night before his conference speech, he was very clear with everyone around the table that although the exact question could not be agreed, Remain had to be an option. One source said it was a point of principle and a question of trust, that if it came down to it, a Labour government would offer Remain at a second referendum. But he had not planned to go public with this position. That is, until after Shadow Chancellor John Macdonald told Sky News Remain would not be on the ballot paper.
4: Let's be absolutely clear, we respect that referendum. We respect the referendum. This will be a referendum of discussion that takes place about the deal itself. As I say, I'd rather we have a general election in which people can then express their views on that and a range of issues and choose a new team.
2: Do you risk other voters feeling betrayed? No,
4: because they'll know that their first sentence and anything we say is that we respect their views and respect their, the referendum
6: decision.
0: Now, the view among Corbynites, McDonnellites and even among Starmerites is that Macdonald did this by accident. By this point, the pragmatist in Macdonald was coming around to Starmer's position. It appears to have been a genuine mistake. However, Len McCluskey, the boss of Unite and a close ally of Corbyn, was a different matter.
1: The referendum shouldn't be on, do we want to go back into the European Union? That shouldn't even be an option. No, because the people have already decided on that. We very rarely have referendums in this country. The people have decided against
0: my wishes and my union's wishes, but they've decided By this point, Starmer was, according to those around him, furious. He felt as though he'd been undermined, that the leader's office was throwing his work back in his face. He was also concerned that it would wreck his relationships with all those people in that room, and that they would think he was a liar. So just before taking the stage to give his conference speech, without running it past anyone, without even showing his aides, ensuring they had plausible deniability when push came to shove, Starmer scribbled down some notes on his paper... And that's when he lit the fuse that was about to explode in full view of the country's media.
1: It's right that Parliament has the first say. It's right that Parliament has the first say. But if we need to break the impasse, our options must include campaigning for a public vote and nobody is ruling out Remain as an option.
0: It wasn't just the media watching. As Starmer received a standing ovation, one which those close to him say he didn't expect, the response within the leaders' team was immediate. One source says there was a collective, sharp intake of breath. Unite went into denial mode. Corbyn's communication director, Seamus Milne, clammed up. In contrast, Corbyn's chief of staff, Carrie Murphy, and her deputy, Amy Jackson, went into full, thick-of-it mode, shouting at aides, What the fuck have you done? It wasn't just Starmer's team who got the brunt of the anger. Sources say people were shouting at John McDonnell and even die-hard Corbyn loyalist Diane Abbott. Anyone who would express support for a second referendum, regardless of where they were in the party. And the tension continued long after conference delegates had left Liverpool. To the outside world, it appeared to be another chapter in the chaos and confusion that dominated Labour. To those on the inside, it was a tipping point in the relationship between Starmer and Corbyn. The
1: staunchly pro-EU backbench MP Ben Bradshaw was pleasantly surprised.
7: I wasn't expecting him to stand up and commit to a second referendum or an affirmative vote or whatever you want to call it. And it was an electorate moment in the conference because it's, it's, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the membership were in that place, but it must have been 80, 85, 90 percent who, who had already thought Brexit was a disaster or would be a disaster. If some Corbynites
1: were furious, others were more accepting. James Meadway from John
2: McDonnell's office again. It's just basic thing that you're going to end up with a somewhat remaining position, that you couldn't run the party in 2019 and say, do you know what, we're just going to do hard Brexit as well. It's not, it's, the thing would blow up. So when Keir Starmer popped up, I think it must have been that conference to say, you know, we could support a second referendum. Now on one level, this is Keir Starmer making, you know, I think it's at this point that it's a bid for leadership, it's a bid to do something different to the existing leadership, so yes. But he's also tapping into a, a widespread sentiment amongst Labour membership and Labour supporters. You know, so you don't, you know, there isn't like Keir Starmer evilly plotting away. He's just doing what politicians do, and he's tapping into what members want to hear.
1: After Corbyn, John McDonnell was one of the most popular leading figures in the party. But as of that standing ovation, he was joined by the shadow Brexit secretary, Starmer was now a force to be reckoned with. But that was a drama yet to come. In the here and now, it was all Brexit. Theresa May presented her draft withdrawal agreement.
2: I know that there will be difficult days ahead. But the choice was this deal, which enables us to take back control and to build a brighter future for our country, or going back to square one.
1: Presented it and had it thrown back in her face.
2: The eyes to the right, 202.
8: The nose to the left, 432.
1: It was the heaviest parliamentary defeat for a British Prime Minister in the modern era. But if May was suffering disaster, her Labour opposite number wasn't endearing himself to many of his MPs. The leaderships of both Labour and the Conservative parties were unpopular and troubled. For non-Corbynites in Labour, as for pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party, a choice seemed to open up. Stay and fight, and probably lose. Or maybe start all over again with a new party. Twist or bust? Since 2010, Gavin Shuka had been the Labour MP for Luton South. Corbyn's semi-success in 2017 was, to Shuka, the
9: decisive moment. My journey was really waking up on the morning of 2017's general election and realising how close we'd come. And I can remember very clearly understanding for the first time that there would be no way that I could stand again to elect Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. So very early on, in, after the 2017 general election, I started to think about, well, who are some of the fellow travellers that have the same ethical dilemma that I do? Um, and actually drew up a list of about 80 to 100 Labour MPs who I felt um, were probably in the same space and just started arranging to have coffee with them. And I worked with them very systematically. And I would just say things like, look, for me, there's no way I'm going to get to the end of this Parliament as a Labour MP because I can't stand at the next um, election as a Labour candidate but what are you going to do about that? And I had a mix of responses, some of which said, I'm grappling with the same things. Some said, well, actually, my plan is to quietly slip away into the distance. Others would say things like, but I've only got two years left to pay my mortgage. But there were a core group of people that I think really were genuinely grappling with that. And that's where the kind of 18 to 20 rolling cast of what's been termed the, the Fair Oak group came from shuka and his small group of fellow travelers found a farm in kent
1: well away from the pressure and media attention of westminster where they could meet and plan a future
9: they went there three times in early 2018 and of course the fun of trying to break 18 to 20 labour mps out of london all on the same train without getting spotted by sam coates or someone uh, caused a, a huge logistical nightmare um but actually, to the best of my knowledge, no one was ever spotted on the uh, the train down to Fair Oak Farm, which is probably pretty crushing for those people involved because we all like to think we're very recognisable. <laughs> but it turns out most people really don't care. Fair Oak Farm. Uh, imagine a small little wedding venue, uh, lots of kind of chintzy stuff around. That group was a real mix because uh, bear in mind people were going through like the stages of like grief, frankly, for a party that they knew. Um, Some people were very angry, uh, so they tended to vent. There was some reporting at the time that this was a group of people plotting to oust Jeremy Corbyn. I would say the opposite. I think this is a group of people who were clear that there was no ousting of Jeremy Corbyn and were trying to understand for themselves and for the country, actually, what that meant. But by the end of that time, we felt that it would be right to charge a smaller group of people to look at what leaving the party and... What could come next could look like. Bear in mind the history of the Labour Party between 2015 and today cannot be told without the existence of WhatsApp. There were endless WhatsApp groups. There were uh, groups of moderates that were loyal to the party, groups of moderates that wanted to break away.
1: In February of 2019, seven Labour MPs, including shuka resigned from the Labour Party, sitting initially as the Independent Group. They were soon joined by three defecting Conservatives and became Change UK.
9: I don't think any of us that chose to break away did it with a huge amount of confidence that this could lead to a broader realignment, but we felt it was our responsibility to try. And so when we left the party, actually, I would say it was quite an electric moment um, in British politics, I only had one test, which is, can we get to the end of the week without being a punchline? And people forget, but the independent group, the the group um, of independents that that sat, um, really did achieve that.
0: I cannot remain in a party that I have today come to the sickening conclusion is institutionally anti-Semitic.
7: This has not been an easy decision for any of us. We've all been Labour members of Parliament for very many years, but it has now been hijacked... By the machine politics of the hard left.
1: It was a decent start for a new grouping, and there was talk of a game changing further 60 Labour MPs who were considering joining it. But at that moment, the party's non Corbynite deputy leader, Tom Watson, became active in persuading people to stay on and, with him, fight to retrieve
9: the party. The key and pivotal the moment, therefore, was the move, I think, of Tom Watson to form a Group of Labour moderates to stay in, to try and prevent others from leaving.
7: I got the impression that Tom was assembling this this group of people to try to keep people in the party. I mean, whether you know, in the long term, if if Corbyn had, by some miracle, won that subsequent election, which would have meant the Labour Party was lost forever, then perhaps that grouping would have been the grouping that would form a new party, but. My interpretation of of it at the time was Tom was not agitating for people to leave, but actually he was trying to help us move collectively together in whatever we did, uh, which which was a slightly different thing.
1: But what about the man, the non-Corbynite, who'd got the biggest ovation at the 2018 Labour conference? There's no suggestion that he ever contemplated leaving
9: the party. His vote was to twist. I mean, the truth is Keir Starmer was a new intake MP. I didn't have much of a relationship um, with him and he wasn't on my list of coffees to be had. I think there was a real distinction between those colleagues that chose to serve in 2015, resign in 2016 and choose not to go back in, and those that chose to resign in 2016 but somehow realised that Corbyn was going nowhere and then would come back in. As we'll see in the next episode,
1: there was a group in Labour calling itself Labour Together that had already begun planning for a post-Corbyn future, which they believed might be coming soon. The catalyst was nothing that was happening in Labour. It was the slow disaster that was befalling the Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May. Her Brexit withdrawal deal was defeated a second time. The nose to the left 391. and a third time.
7: The eyes to the right, 286. The nose to the left, 344. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock!
1: And now, with Parliament unable to reach any agreement, May had to go to the EU and ask for an extension to Britain's membership. Withdrawal, due at the end of March, was rescheduled for the end of October. And one consequence of that was that now the UK was legally bound to hold elections to a European Parliament that it would shortly leave. An election coming just three months after it was set up was a catastrophe for the new Change UK party, which won no seats, and a triumph for the new Brexit party of Nigel Farage. This is a vote that says put no-deal Brexit back on the table, make it part of our negotiations, because without that you've got no chance of getting a sensible free trade deal. And I want us, as the Brexit Party, to be engaged in that. But it's also a vote that says the 31st of October is the next really big day in this process. If we don't, And it was curtains for Theresa May.
2: I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. I do so with no ill will but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love.
1: Destiny, at last, had called out to a man who had always known that one day it would.
6: Good afternoon.
1: I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted I pay tribute to the fortitude and patience of my predecessor and her deep sense of public service. Johnson inherited a mess and a minority government.
6: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
4: I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sangera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.
1: To win a referendum, you need 50% plus of the voters. But if you can be the party that gets over 40% in a general election, you'll likely get a majority in the Commons. As July became August, the polls began to turn in Johnson's favour. Soon, his lead was in double digits. It was obvious what Johnson wanted now. An election. But he could only get one if sufficient of the opposition parties voted for it. Would the Turkeys vote for Christmas? Yeah, well, uh, Johnson's laying a pretty obvious uh, trap and we're just not going to dance to his tune. It was a trap, however, that due to the arithmetic, it didn't need that many to fall into. In late October, Joe Swinson the leader of the Liberal Democrats, obliged. Johnson got his vote. I've uh, just been to see Her Majesty the Queen earlier on and she agreed to dissolve Parliament for an election. I want you to know, of course, that I don't want an early election. No-one much wants to have an election in December, but uh, we've got to the stage where we have no
6: choice.
4: We are ready for an election. We're going to go out there with a very strong message of how we transform our society to end inequality and injustice and deal with the devastating poverty
1: that so many people face. We always said we wanted an election. We do want an election. For the Corbyn camp, there was always the hope that election 2019 could be election 2017 all over again, as long as the main issue wasn't Brexit. The motto was, don't mention the war. The problem was that Boris Johnson mentioned nothing but. Andrew Fisher, Corbyn's policy chief.
5: But when you've got him saying that and, you know, get Brexit done is your slogan and we take three sentences to explain our policy, it's not great. And then when you get off of that, you get to talk about anti-Semitism and defend yourself that you're not actually a racist. I mean, it's not exactly the most inspiring slogan, plus all the dysfunction within our office, which meant we didn't, run as good a campaign as before.
1: Since this for Labour was the non-Brexit campaign, Keir Starmer was effectively sidelined. His leader couldn't be. Here's Liam Byrne, a non-Corbynite Labour MP.
8: After Scribble, British people had come to a view about Jeremy. But also, you know, remember, we had this kind of logjam in Parliament. Parliament could not decide how to get Brexit done. And the country could not take any other decisions until that basic question had been answered. So in a way, the election was doubly unusual because there was one big question on the ballot paper, which is how are we going to get Brexit done? Uh, and, you know, second, there was one settled view about the leader of the Labour Party. So, you know, we were on a hiding to nothing.
1: Carolyn Harris, a Labour MP and a close ally of Keir Starmer's, was on the doorsteps in Swansea.
0: You, you only had to go campaigning or to make phone calls to, to, to potential voters or to visit, in my case, to visit all people's complexes to be told quite happily that they were voting for Boris Johnson. People who, who all voted Labour. I mean, uh, people, some people would say that Brexit was the biggest problem in the 2019. I didn't find that people were more concerned about voting than having Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. So they—they they will not be a Labour MP who stood in 2019, who would, who, if they were being honest, would not have thought that Jeremy Corbyn was having an impact on their vote, because I certainly felt it.
5: Corbyn's closest advisers noted a change in him. And I think he had withdrawn a bit. I think he had become more prickly in interviews i think he'd become more withdrawn i think it i think it affected him i think he felt a bit battered to be honest i mean he hasn't said this to me this is my interpretation and I, you know i i think his resilience is incredible to have survived as long as he did and survived some of the things he did survive um unjustly in a lot of cases as well i might add but yeah i think by 2019 he wasn't the same upbeat jeremy that you saw in 2017 and that was reflected in that election campaign
8: i've got to go and catch a train
4: but I'll be back with a Labour government.
6: And I just let you know this, I've
4: not come here to deliver milk or to hide in a fridge. I've come here with a message of hope, a message of hope for this country, of what this manifesto, what our party represents.
1: Does hindsight suggest a lack of strength in that prediction? Because, as ever... Crowds were one thing and voters were another. And the image they had of Corbyn was not of a kindly radical uncle.
8: Sam Tarry. By that point, having been so vilified that unless you loved him, he was totally Marmite, there was no middle ground. There was no, oh, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, I remember going campaigning in Thurrock, for example, which, you know, as you'll know, is, you know, sort of, you know, kind of a red wall kind of area to some extent, you know, it was hugely pro-Vexit, right? All sorts of, you know, political battles against the BNP and so forth over the last couple of decades there, and UKIP and all sorts. And people literally repeating to me on the doorstep um, stuff which were, wasn't, I guess they were like Tory attack, like them, but it was very powerful. You know, people on the door in throat, just saying. You know, they literally thought this guy was a terrorist sympathizer. They literally thought, you know, he was going to be a threat to their own security. Just stuff uh, which is just, you know, it's just it's mad in my view. Um, which is just, but they, they genuinely believed it. You yeah, know, they genuinely believed it. The organisation of the
1: campaign couldn't be faulted, according to Momentum chair John Landsman. We got
4: enormous number of activists out to far flung. You know, we had dozens of. You know. I mean, altogether, hundreds or, you know, hundreds of people living in far-flung marginals, you know, which, you know, and being, and we, you know, supported them and got people to put them up and to provide transport for people who could visit there at weekends. And that kind of operation was phenomenal. Um, but I was absolutely sufficiently realistic to realise that we were going to lose. And not only that that would mean that Jeremy would go, but that we didn't have a candidate.
1: Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a conservative majority when all the votes are counted
4: after this election of December 2019. We are looking at a conservative majority of 86. I was,
5: yeah, in Jeremy's constituency with Jeremy and a couple of others. And yeah, it was... I mean, it felt like none of us spoke for five minutes. It was probably about 30 seconds, because none of us are good at shutting up anyway, but it felt like an age. And it was just that shock of, oh my God, because the opinion, the exit poll was even worse than the actual result. It was 191 or something, wasn't it, I think? Um, Yeah, I mean, that was chilling. It was just like, oh, yeah, oh dear, but worse language. Yeah, it was grim.
1: It was a defeat no party leader could survive.
4: I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward.
1: Corbyn was going.
5: A dream was dying. And uh, yeah, I spent most of my time just putting my arm around people who were, you know, really upset, because a lot of people had thrown their lives into this for years. And, you know, had thought after 2017, oh, wait a minute, the next step is government. You know, we're on the way. This is an upward trend, and obviously a lot had happened since then. But, you know, even some had against all the odds thought, you know, last time we were surprised by the exit poll, and last time we were surprised by the end result, you know, even though we knew it was going better by that point.
1: A week after the election, unnoticed, all its MPs having lost their seats, What was left of Change UK was formally disbanded. Also, almost unnoticed, the first cases of humans suffering the effects of a new virus were being recorded in the Chinese city of Wuhan. In the defeated Labour Party, the leader was due to depart once a successor had been elected. Jeremy Corbyn's supporters still ran the party. The left-wing campaigning group Momentum seemed to be the best organised faction in Labour many moderates had left on the outside it looked as though a corbyn approved successor from the left was very likely to win but who would that be and who would also stand andrew it needs someone who can unite our party and bring it together it needs someone who can effectively take on boris johnson at the dispatch box and it needs someone unrelentingly focused on winning that general election And there are different ways to inspire people. You can inspire people by building a team of people who want to come with you on a journey and change their party
7: and their country.
0: And I'm trying to answer the question. So the first thing is that we need to understand why we lost the election. And I've tried to start answering that question. So the first element is Brexit. The second element is the manifesto and the way that it was presented. The third element is the fact that there were policies within the manifesto that shouldn't have been in it, that should have been part of a longer-term programme. And then there were the wider issues within the party.
1: Coming up in the final episode of Eight Years Hard Labour, do you really want to go out on a night like this? Eight Years Hard Labour was written and reported by me, David Aronovich. Additional reporting was by Kat Nealon. It was produced by Valerio Esposito. Sound design and original music by Tom Kinsella. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Jasper Corbett. We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode and check out Tortoise's other award winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode.
7: comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard. A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostras, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.